Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us for the show today. This podcast aims to explore a biblical life view in a conversational tone. Let's join our host and founder of Servants of Grace, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I get to welcome back Jonathan Lehman. Jonathan, welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, it's great to great to have you. Hey, um, do you want to tell us, catch us up on what's been going on since we last talked? Probably, I don't know, three or four months ago, I guess. Yeah, I probably, if it was three or four months ago, I would have mentioned that I was leading out on a church land. One of the elders in a church plant, uh, Chevrolet Baptist. We left Capitol Hill Baptist, where I've been on and off since '96. So late leaving was sad, hard, but also exciting as we planted a church, a church in the neighborhood where we lived, Chevrolet Baptist Church, and uh, that's been going well. My, my uh, I serve as an elder. My wife serves as one of the deaconesses there. Uh, our kids have a lot of friends there. It's good. Yeah, I think we're prospering. Oh, wonderful! I'm I'm really happy to hear that things are going so well at uh, at Chevrolet Baptist. That's that's awesome to hear. I was going to ask you that, but so I'm glad you glad you said that. Can you? Uh, we're going to talk today about uh, your your forthcoming book. It'll come out on this podcast uh, around the time when your your book actually releases. Um, this book is called The Rule of Love: How the Local Church Should Reflect God's Love and Authority. Tell us why did you write it? How you hope it's received? Yeah. If- uh, you're one of the few people who re- read my book, Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love. You'll find a lot of familiar material in this book. This is a kind of a new version of that, one-third the length of that, rewritten from that, updated from that, but some of the similar ideas there. And uh, the genesis of that book, uh, which will kind of help you understand this book, it was me standing in a parking lot with Mark Dever and Matt Schmarker, and Mark saying, hey, Jonathan, why don't you write a book on church membership and discipline? I said, great. And they said, hey, why don't you why don't you wrap it around the idea of love, filter it through the idea of love? And I said, great. And so what I set out to write then, and what this book is now, is really, as much as anything, an exploration of love and love and specifically authority. How do those two things connect? There's almost as a sense in which we can't talk about church membership and discipline and our life together until we clarify some things about love and authority. Our culture has very strong views of what love is and very strong views on what authority is. Uh, and some of the things our culture say about love and authority are good. Many things, however, are not good. So what I try to do in this book is say, okay, what does the Bible say love is? How do we think about it? And when Jesus says something like, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Like, Wait, what? I mean, what love and keeping his commands? I thought love is free. I thought love is all about grace. And you're saying, if you love me, you'll keep my commands? You know, it even says, you know, You'll abide in my love if you keep my commands, just as I abide in the Father's love, because he's kept the Father's command. Again, you're like, huh? Um, In other words, Dave, uh, I feel like our intuitions about love and authority in the West today are some good, some bad, and we need to clarify those things, fix those things, before we can even talk about the church. So that's what I'm trying to do in this book. Primarily talking about love and authority, and then secondarily, flowing out of that, what does that mean for the local church. Mm. So you talked about uh, love and authority. What is the relationship between those two, between love and authority? Yeah, sure. I mean, authority is the action of love, right? Mm. Uh, Love is what uh, 
motivates us to uh, make decisions over whatever whatever territory, whatever space, whatever stewardship God has given us. So if I'm if I'm a mother or a coach or a, a manager or a president or a teacher, I have a certain domain of authority. What is authority? Authority is moral, the moral right to make decisions, I'd say. Power is just strength. I have the power to lift up this chair, right? Or power to, to I don't know, throw a javelin. Uh, authority is a moral right to do those things. So when you're given the authority to drive a car, you're given a license. You're given the moral right to drive that car. You have a license which demonstrates it. So all of us have been given authority, moral right to make decisions, to do things in certain domains. And then the question is, what is it that's motivating us? Well, what should motivate us is love, specifically biblical love. Hatred could also motivate our use of authority. Selfishness, self-aggrandizement, uh, vanity, any number of things can motivate our use of authority. Uh, obviously, a Christian should use his or her authority as driven by love. That's, that's really helpful. Why does putting love and authority together clash against some of our most basic intuitions? Yeah, it's been, they've been clashing ever since the Garden of Eden, where Satan basically said, the serpent basically said to Adam and Eve, look, if, if, if God, you know, really loves you, he'll let you do what you want. You're not going to die. You can be like God. Cast off his authority. His, his consequences aren't, aren't the case. And uh, so I would say ever since the Garden of Eden, we, we have separated love and authority in our minds. And what that really means is we're separating God's authority, choosing our own authority over against God's. That is what we've defined as love. So in some ways, what we're talking about here is as old as the garden, and or old as the fall, and, and is ubiquitous across time and space, right? This is not a uniquely American problem as such, or a Western problem. That said, in the West today, in the last couple of centuries, love increasingly has been defined by uh, notions of self-discovery, self-expression, uh, self-definition. If you love someone, you set them free. You know, you think back to the 19th century romantic novels where the goal is to cast off all authority structures and help, you know, love the person who, who uh, I feel destined to love, right? So who cares what mom and dad say? Who cares what place in the aristocracy or, or class system I am? Who cares what, you know, the village parson says? Um, he completes me or she completes me. And we, we have love, aside from all the questions of authority and structures, institutions that are out there. Institutions are bad. And a classic example, of course, the Scarlet Letter, where Hester Prynne is, has this love affair with Arthur Dimsdale, the reverend. And, but of course, that love is illicit. And she is cast out, and yet she's the hero of the novel. Uh, because we know that she knows how to truly love. And poor old Arthur Dimsdale, he's, you know, he's crushed and oppressed by church rule, church law, townsfolk, you know, judgmental townspeople, and so forth. And he's ultimately uh, destroyed by the institutions of, of church and state, while Hester, this one who defies church and state in both different ways, uh, is the one who can live brightly and love brightly, as well as her young young daughter Pearl. Well, I think it's that sort of myth, that sort of view of love, which very much we just take for granted today in the West. Um, and so whether we're talking about same-sex marriage, or we're talking about transgender things, or we're talking about, you know, an excuse to divorce my wife of 30 years. We just don't love each other anymore. Or if they love each other, well, how can it be bad? Or, or we need to do what's most loving for the, for, for the kids and so forth. And so what love becomes is, it becomes a justifier of whatever the self wants. And who, who's going to argue with love? You can't argue with love. It's like the Supreme Trump card. But then again, I want to say, I'll just go back to Jesus. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. That's just different. 
He's got a different set of intuition there. He's thinking about love in a different way. What, what does he mean? And so what I want this book to do, or I hope this book does, is help Christians better understand love and its relationship with authority in reaction or in conversation with the way people in America and the West generally today view it. Yeah, I think it's, uh, when I read it, I thought it was really good, and I've actually read the other one that you mentioned previously as well. So it's been a while. I, I think it was around the time when it came out. That one was by Moody, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh no 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 no! That was Crossway as well. Um, oh, was it? Oh, another, another book of mine was Moody, but yeah, that, oh. it came out in 2010. The first one did. You, you've done so many books, and I've read so many, I, I get them all confused in my head. So. <laughs> <laughs> you flatter. <laughs> right, right. How do you? How do you? Uh, how did the church's decision about what to preach, teach, sing, and pray reveal what they think of the love of God? focus on God's love for me, or, or let me put it this way, is, is, is the focus on my expression of, of love, I could sing of your love forever, I could sing of your love forever, I could sing of your love forever, or is the focus more on God and who he is and what he has done when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died? Let, let, let me just behold God and the glory of God, like a Bob Coughlin song, behold your God seated on a throne. You know, and and my my expression of worship, my expression of love is is uh, beholding Him. You know, th- think think of the think of the uh, what's that line from the hymn? The the the, the, the bride uh, behold. You know, she, she she's not staring at the clothes of of the bridegroom. She's not staring at her own dress. She's beholding her bridegroom's face. Right, and our, our worship and the decisions about what we sing. Uh, are about beholding the face of God in the glory of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ, and not just all the things He does for me. Fill me with Your Spirit, Lord, you know, and so forth. And that's you know, th- th- those are good things to sing too. There's a place for that. I'm not, I'm not saying either or, but I am looking for more of an emphasis on beholding God uh, in, in what we sing. Yeah, what what uh, Dr. Moeller uh, in his latest book he talks about, you know, how prayer reveals uh, our our theology, and I think that. Oh, yeah. That says something, you could apply that, flip that around and say, you know, what we sing reveals our, or talk about, sing, and reveals our theology as well, I think. Yeah, well put, well put. How does, uh, how does the love of God relate to the authority of the church and its leaders? Again, uh, good question. How does the love of God relate to the church and its authority? Well, I mean, too often, church churches in the past, this is what gives many churches a bad name, uh, you, you sense that the churches, the church leaders are just kind of defending their turf, they're, they're making decisions beyond where scripture allows them to go, they're defending themselves and their reputation, and in that regard, obviously, they're, they're not acting at the behest of love, whereas when you act in the behest of love, that obviously is going to dramatically impact how you use the authority that God gives you. I think the other crucial point to make here is that a church's decision about its members and discipline and, and uh, who the members are, dis- uh, decisions about discipline, are going to very much define God's love for the world. Mm. And specifically in this way, when, when we declare holy, unholy, uh, we declare this is where God's love goes, this is where God's love does not go. God's love does not go to the unholy, it does not go to sin. Does God promise pardon for any who would repent and believe? Absolutely. Does he does he uh, desire all to be saved? Yes, absolutely. Does does he have a love for the world 
That's universal. John 3.16, yes, absolutely. At the same time, God promises his special covenanting love, his electing love, only on those who repent and believe, on the holy, because God is holy, right? And he grants that holiness to, to those whom he, he draws to himself. And so in our in our membership and discipline decisions, in our preaching about the way of righteousness versus the way of unrighteousness, we are teaching the world about the love of God. Um, and so when we fail to draw a line between the church and the world, when we tr- fail to declare the unholy unholy, or we fail to distinguish the holy from the unholy, we effectively lie about the love of God. We mis- misrepresent the love of God, right? So, and sadly, so often we're doing this in the name of love. We, we want to be regarded as inclusive and friendly and warm and embracing, but in the process, insofar as we fail to practice church discipline and name the unholy as unholy, correct sin, name the unholy as unholy, again, we misrepresent the love of God. Um, and I, I, I think the, the church, therefore, has a crucial role in its governing leadership decisions, a crucial role uh, to play in defining God's love for the world. Absolutely. Amen. Um, you, and you even talk about this in your in your book. You you talk about how you quote uh, D. A. Carson in his book, uh, the, the dangerous uh, no, the difficult difficult the, doctrine. Yes, thank you, thank you, brother. Um, Surprising and, title, but a good title. Yes, yes. Um, so you're you're talking about just the difficulty of love. So maybe briefly help us think about what the love of God is. Yeah, sure. I mean, the love of God is, in some ways, is His affection for uh, His own glory. It's it's the love of God is His that the burning affection uh, for 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 the holy that uh, characterizes God through and through. And his love for us is demonstrated in his desire for us to share and enjoy the glory that is in, that is him. It's not like there's some other glory out there in the universe available to be enjoyed that's not from God. You know, the only good, all good is from heaven, all good is from God, all beautiful, lovely, true, gloriousness in this universe is from God. And so the love of God is shown in wanting those he has created to to enjoy and share and participate in the goodness and the holiness and the glory that is him, right? In scripture, God's love is spoken out in a, is spoken of in a number of ways, and that's what Carson does in his book. A beautiful, short, little, concise, unexpected book. I'd encourage you to go out and buy it, order it on Amazon or wherever today. And he traces out four different, five different lanes of the way Scripture talks about love. It talks about his universal love for all humanity, right? John three sixteen sort of love. It talks about his special in a Trinitarian love, uh, the love shared between the Father and the Son. It talks about his providential love, who causes the, the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. It talks about his special covenantal electing love. Uh, okay, I love all you know humanity. I love all women in, in a certain kind of vague, broad sense, but I love my wife in a special, covenantal, exclusive sort of way. God does love Israel, his people, the church, in a special, exclusive, covenantal way. And that's a difficult doctrine because people tend to, pastors, Christians, tend to talk about love in only one of those lanes. You know, we like the John 3.16 lane. God loves everybody. Well, yeah, he does love everybody, but he also loves a certain people specially. And so the difficulty is, well, how do we put those two things together? How do we... How do we accommodate both of those? Together with his inner Trinitarian love, his love of the Son, uh, and, the, and the wonder of salvation. And you especially get this in John's Gospel, John 17 in particular. The wonder of salvation is that the love he has for his perfect, beloved, without sin son, 
is given to his special people, and we come to participate in that. So, yeah, that's just that's just a little glimpse of some of the things I talk about in the book. God's yeah. love. Well, well said. Well said. Um, how does the love of God relate to the mission of the church? Uh, how does the love of God relate to the mission of the church? Well, I mean, it's it's popular today, and this is this is complicated. It's popular today to say that. God doesn't have a mission for his church, rather he has a church for his mission. And what that makes it sound like is uh, as if uh, the, the church is merely a means to show and express his love for all the world. I think, in fact, what we see where in Romans 8, creation is groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. There's a sense in which God has a world for his church, and God loves the bride. He loves his son, and he, he draws his bride into that son, and she has a mission to share this good news and draw as many as possible into that church, yes, but ultimately it's 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 for the bride. Here's the analogy, uh, you know, uh, a picture of a rich man standing there with his son on his son's wedding day, and there they are outside the mansion, and, you know, the father of, of, of the son and to his new daughter-in-law is kind of, he's pointing to the five-car garage, and he's pointing to the vineyards and the rose gardens and the mansion and the servants running around offering people hors d'oeuvres and drinks and so forth, and it's just this rich, beautiful, resplendent, palatial setting, right? And the father says to the brand-new daughter-in-law, Okay, all the love I have for my son I'm giving to you, and all this wealth that you see that belongs to my son now belongs to you. And that's what we are as the church. We're covenantally, wedding ring, covenantally united to the son. And all the father's love for the son is now given to the church. Astonishing, remarkable, right? And so what is the mission of the church? Well, it's to extol the glory and praise of God above all things and to celebrate the Father. So in the broadest sense, that's the mission of the church. At the same time, you know, we have a making disciples mission. Uh, I talked throughout the book about God's love is like a boomerang. A boomerang goes out and comes back. It goes out and comes back. So God's love goes out into the world to win for himself a bride. And then he brings that bride back to himself. And that, that boomerang going out, we call making disciples, right? Uh, both teaching everything and then living everything Christ has commanded. So we have a job to do in church. We have the job of making disciples and living according to all the ways God commands us to live. And in the process, we give praise and glory to God. So, yeah, God's love is a boomerang, and the mission of the church is, is part of the going out and the swirling back of mm. that boomerang. Maybe this is a similar question. What does it look like for a church to display the love of God by loving one another as Christ has loved us day to day? Yeah, you have that wonderful verse in John 3, 34 and 35. You know, it says, A new command I give to you, as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. All By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by, and it doesn't say your love for them, though that's true. But there he says, by your love for one another. What does that look like practically in the local church? Well, that looks like, you know, suppose Dave, you and I are members of the same church. And, you know, you 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 ask me to show up for, um, uh, you know, to, as an usher, and I say, yeah, yeah, Dave, I'll be there. I'll, I'll be there to pass out bullets and help people with their seat. But then I don't show up, right? Or I'm really late. I kind of leave you hanging. Well, that moment, I'm just sinned against you, and you are going to be tempted to be angry and bitter towards me. 
Okay. Uh, well, what does loving me at that moment as Christ has loved you? Well, it means you challenge me, you correct me, hey, Jonathan, to, to love the church, you really need to be here on time to fulfill your commitments. But it also means you forgive me. And in that process of forgiving me and restoring our relationship, even though I don't deserve it because I let you down, you are broadcasting a little tiny picture of what Christ's love for us is like. Now, take that act of you forgiving me for showing up late for ushering duty, multiply it by, you know, 10,000, and hopefully that's what you have 10,000 thousand of in the life of a congregation over the course of the year. So non-Christians come in, they watch this, they watch our relationships, not just on the Sunday gathering, but hopefully throughout the week as we're living together, inviting them into our lives as well. They're watching that hospitality and that forgiveness and that care for one another, that laying down our lives for one another, the giving one another the benefit of the doubt, the affirming and encouraging of one another. They're watching that and they're getting a whiff of the gospel. They hear it from our words, they're also watching it in the way we love one another. And then they say, I want some of that. You know, I want to be a part of that. So I can tell you several stories of individuals in my church who, who became Christians by watching the corporate witness of the church. Uh, my boss, in fact, grew up in nominal Christian South, saw a lot of hypocrisy, was turned off to the church, rejected the gospel, and then his mom became converted. And he watched the church care for her, and he watched the church begin to care for him as she drew him in. But he also watched the church care for each other. And he's like, this is unreal. This is unlike anything I've ever seen. This is a, this is a new society, born-again society. I don't know he used that language, but he was, he was watching something he just didn't have an explanation for. Through the process, he eventually repented and believed and became a Christian. Mm. So our love for one another is a crucial part of our evangelism. Mm, great story. Great words. Um, so there's a lot that we haven't covered in this uh, interview about this excellent book, Jonathan. And you know, just as we wrap up and as listeners uh, go and pick this book up, can you give us a few takeaways you hope will, uh, readers and listeners will take away as they read and consider your book? I guess I would just challenge people to look to the Bible and what it says love is. Uh, Satan is uh, an angel of light in many ways, right? So he, he presents us with good stuff, and we say, oh, that's good, and we're deceived by it. And the way our culture talks about love today, in many ways, is, is that angel of life. It's, it's, it's bad, camouflaged as good. And I think our intuitions about love in culture today, from the movies I watched growing up, to the books I was assigned to read in high school, to the conversations I have with my neighbors, you know, some neighbors were over recently, you're talking about... Uh, and they brought up a question, a question of my non-Christian neighbors brought up the matter of uh, two men loving each other, and they just kind of had that default assumption of, oh, why would you ever get in the way of people loving each other? Yeah, so I, I, I guess I'm encouraging a listener. And so far as my book is useful, great, read it. Even more than that, opening the Bible and looking at what the Bible says about love and its relationship to authority, its relationship to holiness, its relationship to God's judgment, Think about what the Bible says about all of these things. And I think that's going to enable you to truly love in the way God means you to love. So, and it's, again, so far as my book is helpful and, and, and tracing out some of those lines, great. I, I hope it does. Well, I, I enjoyed the book. And as always, uh, Jonathan, I very much appreciate your time the work that you're doing at Nine Marks. I saw that you guys are relaunching Pastor's Talk, uh, new season. Woo-hoo. Yay! Uh, I encourage people to check that out. Excellent podcast. Um, you guys produce excellent uh, articles and journals, so I'm thankful for you guys. So, thank you. Great, great. Thank you, Dave. Have a great day, brother. You too, man. Thanks. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you were encouraged by today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. For more uplifting and thought-provoking content, please visit us online at servantsofgrace.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Servants of Grace and on Facebook at facebook.com slash servants of grace. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you next time.